Warriors, Tansei Sego Anibuju, Quainin Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. It's also about living, asserting, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island and protecting our peoples. One of those heroes who are out there protecting the littlest of our peoples is Dr. Cindy Blackstock, and we are so lucky to have her back with us again today. Uh, Some of you will recall that we had her on about six months ago in a three-part podcast to talk about the issue generally of First Nations Kids in Care and what's happening. And then last week, she joined us to give us some more details about the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's compensation order that ordered Canada to compensate all those First Nation kids in foster care who have been racially discriminated against. And that was a a really great podcast, and we learned so much about what's happening. Well, in part two of this extended interview... Uh, Dr. Cindy Blackstock talks to us about Bill C-92, and that is the legislation that is supposed to be addressing what the federal government called a humanitarian crisis of First Nation kids in care. And she talks to us today about the questions and concerns around this legislation, and uh, really with a view to trying to help update everybody on what's happening and also provide some strategic advice for First Nations who are wondering, what happens next. So let's get right in to part two of my extended interview with Dr. Cindy Blackstock. I was wondering if we could turn our attention now to something that's related. It's called Bill C-92. It is legislation that is, uh, you know, intended to address Indigenous children and families, uh, especially around child welfare or what people call child welfare. Uh, It was very controversial. There was lots of witnesses and people and experts who appeared before parliamentary and Senate committees on this legislation, um, highlighting lots of problems, both the wording of the legislation itself and the lack of funding to go with the legislation and a real comprehensive plan about how to implement the legislation. And so many people are asking questions about it because now it's actually, it was actually passed um, and it comes into force on New Year's Eve in 2020, but we're still left with the majority of the same concerns going forward. And I'm wondering if you could just, you know, in a, in as a simple way as possible, kind of explain what the legislation is intended to do and what some of your core concerns around it are. So what it's intended to do is affirm the inherent right of First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities to care for their kids. Now, that's something I think that most of us would agree with. Certainly, I would support it. Where things start running off the rails is when you get into the actual text of the document. It sets out national standards. And some of those national standards are helpful, like cultural continuity, substantive equality, best interests of the child, etc. But the rubber's going to hit the road in terms of how those are interpreted. And who gets to make that interpretation? Under the current version of the Act, it looks like it's going to be mainstream courts. The problem is, we don't even know what court it would go to. And in fact, the courts are also confused about this, which is not very helpful, right? Um, But those standards, where they are in uh, in tension with what the provincial or territorial laws are, the federal law will apply. So in some cases, that's going to mean improvements for First Nations, like in New Brunswick, particularly, where their act is 40 years old, right, on childhood. So this is going to bump up the standards for kids in that area. But in other areas, there is actually arguably higher standards in the provincial legislation in some of these areas. And so it's uh, not clear what happens when the provincial legislation is actually better than what the federal legislation has on offer. But those standards will apply as of the 1st of January. So 1201, when we're all celebrating New Year's, that's when these things click in. And that's also when the judiciary is supposed to be sorting out who hears these cases. Now, the other thing that can happen is a First Nation can draw down its own jurisdiction. It can say, we're going to create our own laws for child and family services. 
In order to do that, it has to give a year's notice under this thing called a coordination and enter into this coordination agreement. Now, what's messy about these things is that there's no money attached to them. So it says you can discuss funding for your own law. And I just need to emphasize, there is no child welfare system anywhere in the Western industrialized world that I know of that can operate without public money. And the reason for that is, unfortunately, our families have had multi-generational impacts from colonization. They've been treated unequally in the provision of federal services. It has just created places where these children and those families are really traumatized. And we need specialized services to, to in combination with traditional approaches, but they have to go together. And it's not unusual to spend $100,000 on a support service for one child. And that child deserves that specialized. Mm -hmm. But this is an expensive program and people need to know that. Now the federal government refused to include any obligation on behalf of itself to fund these agencies or fund these First Nations laws. Even though person after person, you testified that they should provide yeah. funding, I testified they should provide funding, <laughs> many others did. Canada said, no, we're not putting it in there. And then the other piece they say is, well, you can't remove because of poverty. But Canada doesn't say, well, we're gonna increase the funding to lift families out of poverty. And then they say, well, you can't remove because of socioeconomic circumstances, like how overcrowded housing. But there's no money from Canada to alleviate those circumstances. So there's a real issue here as of what, where is the source of money for First Nations to operate these programs? The one pot people might look to, there's two pots. One is called the Child Welfare Jurisdictional Initiative. Well, we got confirmation from Canada that that money has been spent for all of this year, completely allocated, and it also has been spent for next year. So wow. that means you've got until 2022 before you might get some money under that CWJI funding. Well, if you're looking at, if you're a First Nation and you're looking at your agency and you think, well, we'll just take the money from the agency, that also is not secure funding for you because the federal government has restricted agency funding to provincially and territorially delegated agencies. They refuse to open up their definition to fund First Nations laws. So you could well have your own law and you pull out of that agency and you're not going to get any money from it. So this whole thing about money to operate is huge. And um, the other thing is it doesn't have some of the things you think care themselves were asking for, like post-majority services, mm -hmm. right? You know, like, uh, I don't know what you were like when you were 18, Pam, but I was <laughs> not the most competent out there. You know what I mean? <laughs> I thought I was. But... When brass taxes came down to it, mm -mm, not so much. And yet we're talking about youth who have, in many cases, grown up in care. And they deserve yeah, yeah. to have supports to bridge them into early adulthood, up until 24. The Youth in Care Network and other uh, First Nations, Métis and Inuit youth all spoke to the importance of this, and Canada refused to include it in the Act. So it's unclear what happens with those important services that First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children should be entitled to. So, um, well, yeah, it's I mean, that, so on the on the funding thing, because I think that's huge. I mean, a, a lot of people were focused just on you know Canada's promoting itself as look at what we're doing. We're responding to the what they called a humanitarian crisis with legislation, you know, and it was <clears throat> supported by different leaders and. You know, on the one hand, we're all testifying saying, you know, let, let's talk about funding. How are you going to pay for this stuff? While at the same time and on the side, they're meeting with First Nation leaders saying, don't worry, yeah. we'll provide the funding. But there's a very big difference between a political promise of someday we'll provide the funding and it's an unknown amount versus having statutorily guaranteed funding that we, you know, we accept the responsibility to fund. So you left with this weird scenario where we can't take children for reasons of poverty and 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 I agree I think that poverty should be addressed but we're not assuming any responsibility to remove those conditions of poverty so what are you saying then you're going to let the 
child stay in poverty and you're not going to address the poverty and just keep perpetuating the same harm. And so, you know, you've got real life implications for children and babies and youth on the ground. And then for a, from a First Nation perspective, this legislation is like saying, we give you the power to all operate your own hospitals, but we're not giving you any money. So yeah. no money for buildings or staff or education or hiring or infrastructure or medicine. And we know that it costs billions of dollars to run hospitals. So it's it's almost like when they say, look at this important thing we're doing, it's all very hollow. It's all very superficial with none of what's really needed behind it. Yeah, and like it's important for everyone listening to this to realize that we're now at November 11th. This is to come into effect on January 1st. The federal government has no transition plan. It has not gone out there and communicated with the provincial and territorial social workers who this will bind. It has not talked to agencies. There's a lot of lack of clarity about, among First Nations agencies and First Nations leadership. Um, there are no regulations for this act. Uh, so this is going to, this is such a, this is a very vague act in many ways. Regulations would have helped provide clarity about what's happening for children. Those have not been developed. And as I say, we have no money to implement it. So um, it's worrying to me, right, about what's going to happen on uh, on on J January 1st. There could be some, and it's disappointing because you probably know, uh, but your listeners may not, that First Nations actually had a good draft of legislation. Yeah. So we're waiting around for the feds to write something for us. Um, people led by Mary T.G. from BC, uh, but many others had input into it, uh, had written a First Nations Act that was really solid, right? Was it perfect? No. And Mary would say that. That's why we were, she was out talking to First Nations to make it even better than what it was. Mm -hmm. But and so it was handed over to Canada and they refused it. And they, I found that that was interesting because they were out there saying this is co-developed and led by First Nations, Métis and Inuit. But really, all the substantive recommendations coming from nations, coming from experts who are First Nations, Métis and Inuit, were rebuffed by the federal government. At the end of the day, it was non-Indigenous people, not trained in child mm -hmm. welfare, not trained in First Nations communities, who are federal bureaucrats who are making a decision to say no to all of this expert advice. And uh, that, including this good First Nations draft. Well, and, and that, so there's the other problem. So, I, I mean, I, I can't come from Justice Canada and Indian Affairs. You know, I did 10 years hard time in the feds. So I, I, I've been at Justice Canada. I've taken their legislative drafting training and interpretation, and I know what their process is. Yeah. There is no such thing as co-drafting of legislation on the federal context. It's, it's an English and a French lawyer that sit in a room and they draft legislation based on policy documents that are sent from whatever department it is. In this case, it would be Indian Affairs, who don't have any child welfare expertise, except on the funding uh, part of things in a very minimal way. Um, and, and there's no AFN and there's no MNC or ITK or anyone sitting in those rooms or any appointed native lawyer co-drafting co this legislation. <clears throat> so when they say co-develop, or and they used to say co-drafting, and then they changed their terminologies, that's really, really, really misleading. Yeah. It's, it's more like Indigenous organizations saying, here's generally what we would like to see, and then it's Indian Affairs deciding what the policy will be, and then the legislative drafters drafting it. And that's why... I think you see so many problems and you know, that's okay if they took a first stab at it and they didn't do their co-drafting, yeah. but there were so many people that testified before all of their parliamentary and Senate committees multiple times saying, here's some legitimate concerns. You know, even those who were saying, look, this, we're not necessarily against the legislation, although some were, um, yeah. But here's how you could amend it to make it better. Here's yeah. some big red flags, you know, that are going to cause some problems down the road. And because they didn't, uh, for whatever reason, use that expertise 
coming from people and and even kids that have been in care. I mean, I sat beside a young man who was, you know, testifying about what was needed for him for afterwards and how important that was for him to just really ignore all of that and come up with this piece of legislation that now it's not just us that has concerns. You have you know, litigators who are concerned, you have, um, you know, uh, provinces who have expressed concerns publicly and not publicly. There's um, probably different judges and justices who are concerned about a whole bunch of things, not just the details, but where do you take this when there's a problem? So on New Year's Eve, Mm -hmm. a child is apprehended from a scenario, but the First Nation says, oh, well, we we assert our own jurisdiction here. And then the province says, yeah, but you don't have a coordination agreement. And like, which court is that going to go to? How do you decide that on the last minute? What does a social worker do? Oh, wait, is this a federal law? Is this provincial? Is this First Nation? Who are we listening to? Who do we call? It's like it's setting up all this chaos that runs the risk of babies, children, and youth falling through the cracks. And right. that that's the exact opposite of what those of us who testified ever wanted to happen. That's right. And, you know, like, I'm really disappointed because um, I, I like you, I support First Nations jurisdiction. I've seen many nations put on years of effort towards drafting their laws. They're very solid laws. And not just the law, that's often the easy part. Mm -hmm. It's about building that awareness and um, capacity within the community to exercise that jurisdiction when it comes to have those hard conversations about, well, okay, there is sexual abuse in our community. So how are we going to make sure children are safe and how are we going to address it? How are we going to embrace the stuff that hurts within our nation? Uh, in ways that keep children safer and keep families healthier. Uh, those are the kinds of things that are uh, have been thought about in many nations. And I worry this chaos, once it occurs, it'll be the feds pointing the finger at everybody else. We gave you what you wanted. Yeah. And uh, here you are making a mess of it again. It's the ultimate uh, play from the colonial playbook. And I don't want to see that happen to First Nations. I don't want to see it happen to children or their families either. And so I think a couple of things that uh, people can do, if you're a nation and you want to draw down your jurisdiction, do not signal that coordination agreement. Mm -hmm. Because once you do that, you have 12 months to negotiate funding and all kinds of other matters, like how are you going to deal with one of your citizens is removed in BC and you're Manitoba First Nation, for example. Um, You have to figure all that stuff out within those 12 months. And even if it's not figured out, this is the key piece, even if it's not figured out, then your law becomes law 365 days downstream. And then it's not clear, wow, if we have our own law, that's good, but where's the money to deal with it? Mm -hmm. And that into context, um, I was thinking just the other day, I started on this national funding stuff in 1997, right? Yeah. That was 22 years ago, and I was looking a lot younger than I am today. <laughs> and like on the strength of 10 orders, we're finally getting some, some movement. But that's, that's 22 years, and they're expecting First Nations to negotiate fair and equitable funding agreements within a year. I don't know if that's going to work out so well. So what I would recommend is First Nations, a couple of pieces of good news. One is the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Development is working with the National Advisory Committee to figure out how much does it cost, not just to deliver child welfare, but importantly, to deal with all those problems that drive the overrepresentation, like poverty, uh, addictions, fueled by the trauma from colonialism, uh, overcrowded housing. Let's see how much it would cost for our kids to thrive in broad strokes. That funding report is well underway and it'll be available in the summer of this year. That will give First Nations a good sense of what would it take to do things differently, the way that I see First Nations talk about it. The second is also negotiate that funding agreement to test whether or not the federal government is really willing to be accountable for its statement, well, we'll deal with funding later. Um, While we have the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's decision on the principles of funding, I would really recommend First Nations integrate that into their funding agreement with Canada, and that they also integrate Jordan's principle 
into mm -hmm. their funding agreement because Canada refused to put Jordan's principle into the act. And I think they did that deliberately. So um, they can do that. And then when it comes to the vision, I think this is also an important piece. Some First Nations already have done the work of getting community members together to reclaim what their vision of a healthy family was. But for others, that's fractured because of colonialism. Mm -hmm. People have one piece of it in a community, maybe another uh, clan mother has another part of it, but there hasn't been an opportunity to bring people together to jointly vision what that is. And until you have a clear sense of that, then it's hard to work backwards to say, well, okay, this is where we are now. This is where we want to go. How do we get there? Mm -hmm. And also, it makes it hard to figure out what were our traditional laws when it came to kids? And then how do we make those contemporary to deal with things that our ancestors didn't have to deal with, like opioid crises, right? So we have something called the Touchstones of Hope that people can do that community visioning with. So that's another thing you could get underway right away. And then the third thing you could think about is just taking it slow. You don't have to have full jurisdiction overnight, especially with all this uncertainty. And, you know, I think you and I are both hoping that our prediction of chaos doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and I really hope I, it doesn't. Um, and I know there's people out there who believe it won't. Well, I hope you're true. I hope that's right. But you can't bank on it because the what's at stake here is really too high of a price. Children and families cannot be left in this level of uncertainty. So just take it slow. Take mm -hmm. one piece of the jurisdiction down and pass your own law. But maybe just say, here's parts of the law. There's more to come. And the first part of our law says that the federal government has a positive obligation to fund our laws according to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal um, principles. So though it's substantive equality, that there has to be respect for our distinct culture and language and our situation in our community. That there has to be a best interest test, but not best interest in the colonial kind of point of view. Yeah but a best interest in the way that we would envision what is actually acting in a good way for kids and for families. All of those things can be, and, and on the needs of children and families, mm -hmm. all can be basketed in. You could say, that's our first law, Canada. What are you going to do with it? And I think that would test um, how serious Canada is about observing and respecting its responsibilities in reconciliation, but also its responsibilities that it publicly said time and time again, we'll deal with the money later. Well, now it's later. What are they going to do about it? Yeah, exactly. And with with lawmaking, um, you know, I work with a lot of First Nations communities and leaders, and we're we talk about self determination, self governance, and and uh, lawmaking, enforcement, adjudication, all of that stuff. And sometimes there's a hesitancy to do lawmaking unless they do it all, yeah. all at once, because it has to be perfect. You know, we've got this incredible microscope on us. You know, people are constantly, and when I say people, it's generally the government, you know, constantly judging us for all of our failures when we're really still trying, we're still in this decolonization process, which we'll be in for a long time because colonization hasn't even stopped. But, you know, there's, there's a real strength in what you're advising around take it a step at a time. Let's do our first law over this particular defined area. Let's make all of our mistakes. Let's do our amendments. Let's see how it works out and then take that and build on the next segment and the next segment. Always keeping in mind something else that you talk to me about is, you know, what are the responsibilities and obligations that you assume for each law that you do implement. And that's often not thought about. It's, you know, we think about asserting, you know, our jurisdiction in this yeah. area, but what comes with that? N not yeah. just the funding, but what are all of the obligations? And I think at this point, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of confusion around who is responsible for what under C-92, in what stage? Is the province liable? Is the federal government liable? Is the First Nation liable? Is the agency liable? Is the social worker liable? And you, you have the best legal minds in this country and some justices who are like, gee, we don't know under this legislation. No, there's so many unknowns. And, uh, and as I said earlier, I, 
That's unfortunate because I think the other act that was prepared by First Nations had a lot more clarity and wouldn't have left so much up in the air for kids and families come January 1st. Um, It's important to know that law is still there as a draft. And so uh, I think we should be pressing for something much stronger than what we've got right now. I don't think that we should accept what this law is. Um, It has, on the benefit side, a firm First Nations jurisdiction if you believe that funding is not part of jurisdiction. I yeah. don't happen to do, take that. I think that, juris, that funding and juris, recognition of laws come together, mm-hmm. that they have to come together. The other piece that I really caution First Nations about is, and uh, you know, I, I've been the blessing over these many years of uh, attending a lot of community gatherings, hearing elders, knowledge keepers, and young people talk about their traditional laws for children and families. And I cannot think of one Pam that was a child welfare law traditionally mm-hmm. there was family law and so this act will only deal with child welfare law which is one small sliver of mm-hmm. what I understand First Nations laws to be when it comes traditionally to families and so we need to make sure that Uh, we're leveraging this in a way that promotes that First Nations vision and doesn't further deepen us into a colonial silo of looking at children one piece at a time and families one piece at a time. You know, families and children are more than child welfare. And I'd really encourage uh, First Nations to look towards their uh, colleagues uh, who have done this type of work to come up with a family law and along with that, a family justice system. Mm-hmm. Because whenever we exercised our laws, they were accountable laws. It wasn't as if I could go and do what I wanted, and then there was no accountability for me as the person enforcing the law. Just in any good legal system, you need checks and balances in that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and- if you're able to develop your own legal system, then it's not going to be the non-Indigenous courts interpreting what your laws mean, because that's where the way it is right now. And you know better than I am. You're a lawyer. But if you are saying you have juris- you have First Nations jurisdiction, you write your own law, but it's going to be in practice interpreted by non-Indigenous courts. And that's going to lay down uh, the parameters of what your law actually means in practice for families. I'm not sure that's self-government. No, of course not. And think about what has been the problem, uh, one of the problems, because there have been many in, you know, so-called child welfare around the best interests of the child test. Many, many, many racially discriminatory decisions have been made by individuals and courts based on a colonial concept of what's in the best interest of the child. So if we just leave it to the courts who've already determined, I mean, there's already, as you know, um, kind of a definition, a test of what's best interest of the child. And Bill C-92 doesn't really talk about a First Nation concept of best interests of the First Nation and the family and the community and the child and all of that context. Um, Then you're just throwing it back to a court to think about, well, what's in the best interest of the child? In all this chaos, what are they going to defer to? They're going to defer to what they've always done. And in, in some cases, that hasn't led to a good result for the child or the family. There may have been, you know, good instances, obviously, in emergency situations, but it's it's almost like we're, it starts out, which it looks good, and then it goes back in a circle, and you're just putting it back in the same court, which is making the same decisions, again, because we don't have it defined. Like, one of the issues was, why doesn't this act talk about what is considered harm to a child? Like, why can't we just have an honest and frank discussion about what that is? Because, you know, our reaction, like, you know, many have said and and you've said, we react in a protective way over our children. You know, we don't want any apprehensions. We just we just have to stop this all. And, And I'm, for one, have been guilty of saying that. But saying that is we don't want any racially discriminatory apprehensions. We don't want any unfair apprehensions. But it's not like apprehensions will ever stop if we're talking about emergency situations where a child is being human trafficked or they're being you know, sexually abused. Of course, that child has to be removed from that circumstance. So how do we talk about in a good way all of these factors around 
how are we going to address these things? Because the assertion of jurisdiction and sovereignty and self-determination doesn't stop the 500 years of colonization that has happened to our communities or 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 the other things that happened to our children you know from from outside influences and those are things that you don't get you don't have like a a one day meeting in your community and say let's talk about this and okay we all go away with a law that somehow represents all of that 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 takes a lot of time and it seems to me that the government wasn't prepared to give first nations any time or any funding or any real sovereignty over making some of these decisions and now because courts will always think about the best interests right before them you know the urgent needs of the children they're just gonna if if this act is too messy and we don't know what's happening they're just gonna revert back to what all of the court cases already do yeah, and, uh, you know, a big shout out to our colleague, Hadley Friedland, who's done a lot of writing on this, and I really encourage people to to listen to her and uh, to read her stuff on best interests. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I don't, I'm not one of these people, neither are you, who believes, who's a utopian thinker. Some of our kids need to be in care. Um, what I'm after is making sure that we provide families with every opportunity to be able to mm-hmm. save their kids. And... That means doing all that prep work. You know, I wish it was as easy as we'll do a better job just because we're in the community. Um, I really wish it was that easy, but it's not. Um, We can't address the opioid crisis uh, without specialized help. We can't deal with the multi-generational sexual abuse that that started in residential schools without specialized help. We can't deal with um, the heavy trauma that's in many communities by deploying community members who are themselves often traumatized to address that trauma in their own families. We have to do this in a way that's respectful, that honors the strengths of communities, that doesn't diminish them in any way. I'm not diminishing them in mm-hmm. any way. I just want to, I want to respect ourselves enough to be truthful about where we're coming from here and to set ourselves and most of all the children and families up for success. Mm-hmm. And that means that we do all that hard work. We do that visioning at a community level about what our family laws were, that we develop the systems for that, and that we actually give thanks to these First Nations agencies who for the last 40 years have been doing this work and often are thrown right under the bus, but are less likely to remove kids than the mainstream agencies are, and have done that with despite dramatic underfunding by the federal government. There are people there every single day who have got the expertise from the community and we should be honoring those people because under a self-government type of arrangement, we're still going to need folks like them to be able to do this work. And why wouldn't we do it with, why wouldn't we use this, these, this group of folks who have been doing this job for years? Maybe we need to change some things. Yes. Mm -hmm. But um, you don't just start from scratch and then say, well, we're going to throw away everything that we've worked so hard for over the last number of years for as a nation. That doesn't make any sense either. So I really believe First Nations can do it. Mm -hmm. I think every community member knows of a family member in their family or a neighboring nation who is struggling and who is not open to help right now. And it's those families that we need to keep in mind when we develop mm-hmm. child welfare systems. Um, it's, uh, we can do all the stuff around the voluntary services. Mm-hmm. That's all those families are, you can really make some change, but it's for the families that are so traumatized that they aren't able to see past their addictions to mm-hmm. be able to really uh, think about the impacts of their children or can't see past the trauma to be able to see what the impacts on their children. That's the stuff where child welfare really hits the road. And we need to think about how we're going to support those families and their kids. Yeah, and and what you said about the costs, I mean, I hate to keep coming back to the costs, but you and I were having a conversation earlier that um, the costs are real and significant, especially in cases where, well, you know, colonization has traumatized us multiple generations over and trauma so we can have psychological trauma. But then there's also, like you said, there's, you know, uh, children who are born with diseases in addition to psychological trauma. They could have neurological disorders. They could have a whole bunch of, you know, reactions to the trauma that they've suffered as children. And, you know, I think you were saying that one of the, you know, one 
of the figures is, you know, one child alone could cost a hundred thousand dollars, you know, just that one child, and you could have multiple children in the same family. And without the federal government uh, coming up with the funding to say, here, First Nations, now that you've assumed jurisdiction and you run your own, you know, um, child welfare or family welfare system, here's the money for it because. You know, it's it does a disservice when the federal government says, you know, we recognize the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and we recognize it without condition and we're working on implementing it into law. But if they really meant that, there's provisions in UNDRIP that say, yes, we have the right to be self-determining and develop our own institutions, but we also have a right to the ways and means to fully yeah. fund that. And that's an obligation that comes from the state. So the, here's the government saying, we're going to recognize your jurisdiction. And I would argue it's not really a full recognition of our jurisdiction, but with no money to go with it, it's not a recognition in reality. And we all know these things cost. And why? how could we possibly do this without the funding? And And I don't know how we get around that without being right back in square one, like your Canadian Human Rights Tribunal case, where you know, ongoing, willful and reckless racial discrimination and underfunding of First Nations and families and kids in care. Like, like, what is it going to take for them to actually provide funding? Significant funding, because we're not even just talking about equal. You know, Mm. sometimes people think, well, if it was the same as other provincial residents, we'd be okay. But that doesn't take into account all of the historic buildup or the deficit Mm -hmm. of education and training and infrastructure and all of that stuff that we haven't had. You couldn't just give the same money now and it be anywhere even enough. No. And I think one thing I figure I like to throw out to people is, although we are still not finished at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal with compliance, we have, I think, four other orders under reserve right now at the tribunal. Um, if you add together the money the Fed spent on uh, Jordan's principal as a result of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal order, with the money they're now spending on child and family services, we're at about, just in one year alone, it would be about $3.6 billion. Um, you think about Kelowna. Remember back at that, yeah. that town? Yeah. When $5 billion is going to be able to, uh, you know, really make a landmark change. billion and we still say that's not enough because they're not funding things like capital to be able to house Mm -hmm. culturally safe prevention programs and to also work with families who do have their child in care to address those risks and get them back into their family home. So there's lots of gaps Um, and you have to wonder, gee, the feds are, have been forced by the courts to pay this extra money, 3.6 billion. Uh, of which in the past they were spending 600000 So it's an additional $3 billion and counting. And they are opposing compensation at the, Kinney, uh, at the federal court to pay the victims. And they're opposing all the orders at the Kenyan Human Rights Tribunal. And they want to download child welfare. I wonder why. Yeah, Exactly. Of all the programs they could have downloaded, they could have downloaded uh, governance on resources, for example. They could have affirmed First Nations' rights to make those decisions. They could have affirmed First Nations' jurisdiction in, um, you know, um, in lawmaking, for mm-hmm. example, setting up legal systems, uh, all of these things. But they chose child welfare. And... I, I can't help but be skeptical about that. I worry that they're trying to get out of those tribunal orders. They found out that, child, that treating kids fairly actually cost them way too much money. They were saving so much money by discriminating against them. And I worry that this is really just a download uh, to First Nations. And well, I mean, it, it's, it's a pattern. I mean hate to be a downer. You know, I feel like I'm always a downer on these things and I should be seeing some ray of hope, but it's not hopeful until our kids are okay. But look at when water became 
you know, it was in the media, First Nations lack of access to water, lack of access to um, sewer, but also lack of access to clean drinking water if they do have water. Um, what did they do? The former government passed First Nations water legislation and the most significant component in it was the federal government is no longer liable for water on reserve and transfers all that liability to the First Nation because they're like, wow, discriminating or not living up to our legal obligations under the constitution or treaties or whatever else is going to cost us, we're going to have to pay in the end. So let's just get rid of that um, liability. When they amended the Indian Act each time with, you know, um, the last several cases, whether it's Sharon McIver's case or Sanders Lovelace's case, they include these provisions that say, and we're not liable or have to pay compensation for anybody that we've discriminated against over the last few decades. So you see this pattern in legislation where it's all about the transfer of liability, no real comprehensive resolution of the discrimination, and them trying to basically offload. And, you know, I've you have talked to other people about this. I, I have to wonder what the provinces have to think about this. You know, because the provinces are implicated in this legislation, there wasn't comprehensive consultation. There was no tri there was no effort on a tripartite level to bring First Nations, the federal government, and the different provinces together to talk about these issues and see what would be the best going forward. It was just rushed. Nobody had time to do anything, and certainly no real consultations with First Nations. And now you've got this package deal. I have to wonder what provinces think about that. Yeah, it's a it's a good question, right? I think that I've heard that in some cases they really share a lot of the concerns of the First Nations and First Nations experts in their area. Uh, but the bottom line is no one has answers, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, just going back to your last point, I think it's really important to know that the feds are already citing C-92 um, in their legal arguments against compensation. No. Yes. So if you look at their legal submissions on quashing the compensation order, getting the stay, they cite C-92 in there in the affidavit uh, that was filed in early October and one filed just on Friday. So they're using it to shield themselves already um, and not to promote really what this is intended to do, mm -hmm. which is the inherent right and safety and well-being of First Nations, Métis and Inuit families. And therein lies another problem in that I'm really about distinction space. Um, some people will say, well, you should be using the word Indigenous more often. I mm -hmm. actually don't. I use the word Aboriginal over Indigenous. And the reason for that is that uh, both of those words have Western uh, derivations. They mm -hmm. mean probably the same thing, Indigenous and Aboriginal. But Aboriginal, at least is in Section 35 of the Constitution, recognizing Aboriginal rights and title. <laughs> so if I have to choose one of the colonial things, yeah. I'm going to go for that. But what the feds did with this is they did it, I think, in a way that really disrespected the very unique circumstances of Inuit children and families, Métis children and families, and First Nations children and families, where they said, we can't take any of your particular circumstances or your rights into consideration because we're going to all mesh you all together. And um, I that was a real missed opportunity. Yeah. I don't think anyone, I can only say from the First Nations folks I talked to, no one was interested in that. Uh, they certainly respected the ability of First Nations or Métis and Inuit to create their own laws, but mm -hmm. that shouldn't mean that um, everybody goes down to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. You know, and that's what the Fed said about Jordan's principle. We're not going to include Jordan's principle because the Métis aren't included in it. Well, you know, you had a choice to create a First Nations law yes. that would have respected Jordan's principle and then for Métis communities to create a law with them that responded to their unique culture yeah. and circumstances as well. They chose not to do it. So I think on the best case scenario, we have to approach this as an opportunity, mm -hmm. but we have to do it with our eyes wide open. And mm -hmm. that means acknowledging there's lots of lack of clarity here, and that's never good for kids and families in vulnerable situations. So let's walk into this and ask really good questions Take it slow. Do what we know we can do really well. 
and really test the federal government's willingness to accept its responsibilities to support First Nations in their important work of caring for kids and families. And while we're doing that, we're going to have our courageous conversations in our nations mm -hmm. and with ourselves about how are we going to address the multi-generational impacts of colonialism in our community? How are we going to deal with sexual abuse in our community or, her, or sexual harassment and exploitation of women and girls? How are we going to deal mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the chronic substance abuse where persons are not at a place where they want treatment? How are we going to deal with those things? Those are the conversations that can happen, that have happened in some First Nations mm -hmm. that are essential to making sure that this is a success. Yeah, and I and I think the key really is we're always reacting to the federal government and provincial governments and what they're doing and trying to force us into these, you know, it's all or nothing scenarios, you get this or nothing, and we're constantly forced to make decisions. Well, we have, we're in a scenario where now, you know, that legislation's already passed, it comes into force on New Year's Eve, but we... we I think First Nations, I, I, I mean, I really like your advice about taking it slow. There's a lot of First Nations who are actively right now engaged in those community conversations and a lot of First Nations who are actively engaged in drafting their own laws and planning around infrastructure and planning around some of them want to continue on with their First Nation agencies. Others want to incorporate the agencies under their governments. Others want to do a combination and all of those things take time. And I think the most important thing First Nations can do is continue on with all of that work they're doing and not feel like, oh, it's all for naught now because of this legislation, because we don't know what's going to happen with this legislation. It might be challenged and turfed out. They might, you know, start over. It might be amended. But I think we shouldn't always direct our actions based on what the federal government is offering. I think we need to do all of those things you were saying and keep doing the work you know, with or without the funding, the, you know, the work on the ground by the people who offer all of their services, I, I think that's that's so important, you yeah. know, going and forward that we continue this work. And we have to lift up those courageous community members yeah. and agency workers who every day are going out there and walking right into that darkness of mm -hmm. that colonialism and that impact. I have done child welfare work. It was the hardest job I've ever done in my life. Um, because you are face to face with that multi-generational trauma and you're trying to work with families at the same time you have to keep kids safe. Mm -hmm. And we need to honor those people. That has to be part of our approach. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know of a First Nations law for children and family that's based on anger or based on hate. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all based on love and unity and respect. And we need to, to um, harness those, those values that we have traditionally, the gifts from our ancestors and our distinct nations, and use that as a basis of moving forward. And that means in our relationships of one another. Uh, mm -hmm. there, you know, when it comes to caring for kids in our communities, we need everybody to step up to the plate, every single person. Uh, because honestly, that's what kids deserve. And that's mm -hmm. our adults no matter what we do you could be chief you could be running the water plant you could be a lawyer you could be a business person but number one obligation is looking out for kids well no that's the core of our sovereignty right our collective and we're not very we can't be call ourselves self-determining if we're not taking care of everyone in the collective that makes that up so i i really appreciate that i appreciate that you took so much time to talk both about this you know, compensation order and what Canada's doing, but also about C92, because none of us have it all figured out and we're all struggling and people don't know what to do going forward. So I think, you know, that's some good advice. And, you know, I appreciate all of the people like Naomi and Hadley and like, there's so many people doing really good work in all of these, you know, communities, trying to make the best of the mess that was was handed over to us. So, um, and thank you, Cindy, for everything that you do to stand up for First Nation kids, for actually coming back on this podcast, um, you know, for, for reaching out to Canadians as well and, and, and 
asking them to stand alongside us as allies and help push government. And I know that takes a lot of work. And and I also want to acknowledge you too for the way in which you don't do this all alone. You you work with so many other people. You know, behind the scenes, you're always reaching out to leaders and other experts and saying, "I don't have all the answers. Please help me. Please help yeah. us. Let's do this together." You know, and and that's that's how we're going to get this done because we are all in it together we might not all agree on every specific yeah. path forward but it's it's all about the kids and we can all agree this is about keeping our families you know together and our communities together and everybody um you know protecting our kids so thank you every for everything that you do well, Pam, it's always a privilege just to be on your program and to see all the great work you do. And, you know, just as a shout out to Naomi and Hadley and Jeffrey Hewitt and others, uh, Sarah Morales, they did a great analysis on C92 at the Yellowhead Institute. And so folks can go onto their website and see what mm -hmm. they thought of that bill. And then they have some strategies, some suggestions uh, about how to implement it. So do check out their work and uh, keep your eyes open all of us are trying to figure this thing out yeah. uh if anyone tells you they got all the answers uh <laughs> well be suspicious they're probably yeah. a snake oil salesperson right now we're all going to be asking really important questions and we should demand at least fundamental basic accountability from the federal government in terms of making sure that we're set up for success well, and we're all stronger together in this. So yeah. I think that's that's where the solution lies. So thank you for coming on to my podcast again, which will be a YouTube video too. Um, I, heard, I hope that everybody uh, learned a lot from Cindy and got something from this conversation. And what I'll do is I'll post a link to her website and the seven three free things that you can do and all of the updates on the court case so that we you can learn more about the resources at the First Nation Child and Family Caring Society. And if you like this episode or you thought it was educational or informative, please share it. You know, share it with other people working in this area. Share it with your, you know, social justice allies. Um, it's we really need to do more to kind of help each other in this process. So, um, and if you have any questions or comments, leave them in the description box or in the comment section. And you can access this podcast on SoundCloud, that's where it's hosted, but also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. But I'm also going to post it on YouTube, hopefully this all works, um, as I'm learning this whole process, so that people can access it in a variety of ways that are accessible because YouTube also has uh, captioning for uh, people who need captioning. So we're trying to reach as many people as possible. So till next time, thank you so much, Cindy. Thanks for all the work you do. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. Uh, keep living a warrior life. Walaliog. Well,